Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the Managing Director of Cyber Theory, and uh, this is our weekly podcast uh, in which we explore all of the wonders of cybersecurity. And today I uh, am fortunate to have with me Fred Cohen, who is the CEO of Management Analytics, a uh, assessment and planning advisory services, litigation support, and angel investment company with a long pedigree in cybersecurity. Fred is down in Pebble Beach, California. So all of you folks that wish you were on a golf course can only dream about that. And in fact, Fred was the guy who, as a graduate student at USC, coined the term computer virus and and actually wrote the first computer virus program back in November of 1983. Fred went on to earn his doctorate in electrical engineering from USC to join his master's in information science from the University of Pittsburgh and his undergrad in electrical engineering from Carnegie Mellon. Fred led the team that defined the information assurance program as it relates to critical infrastructure protection. He uh, did seminal research in the use of deception for information protection, is a leader in advancing the science of digital forensic evidence examination, and has been a top flight information protection consultant and industry analyst for many years. Too numerous to recite as I could be here all day, but Fred's accomplishments are legendary and the protection techniques he pioneered now help to defend more than three quarters of all the computers in the world, including the actual core technologies used in antivirus mechanisms and other trusted platform modules to say that Fred knows something about computers and security is an understatement at best. So so welcome, Fred. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for that extraordinarily complimentary read of the information I've posted on the internet. <laughs> you and I have shared opinions about a lot of subjects in cybersecurity as we've gotten to know each other on uh, online here. And the one I obsess about the most these days is what I call the complexity problem. And my question for you is, have we created a problem space in computing so complicated that we'll forever be unable to safely operate in it for its intended purposes? Well, of course, as I think you probably agree, complexity is the enemy of security. Whether we've created a situation that forever will be unresolvable, I think that's unlikely. You know, I I have a positive view of the world. If you look at the progress of the world in terms of information technology and, and increasingly cybernetic technology, right? Communication, sensors, actuators, and control. Things have gotten better for humanity. People are living longer, they're safer, they're able to do more things more easily than they were ever able to do before all this technology came into being. So the net effect of cyber technology to date is very positive for humanity. 
it obviously has its potential negatives. But in terms of complexity, what we've done largely is pile crap on crap. So, you know, if you pile enough crap on enough crap, eventually it all falls down. At the same time, a lot of it gets replaced. So there is a a replacement cycle in information technology. And a good example of that is the trusted platform module, which is an integrity mechanism that's available in many of the systems out there. And as an example, that's something that has improved the integrity of systems without changing all the other problems that they have. So because of the ability to partition things, it's entirely possible that we could replace thing after thing. Another really good example is the web, which has obviously created lots of problems and complexity, but it also has enabled a a different modality than loading all the programs into one computer system and having them all run there. So, you know, when they're not all running in the same place together, it's safer. So, So my point is you need to manage complexity in order to, you know, keep it reasonably safe, but safe for what purpose? If my if my game that lets me you know I don't know do paintings um, and I'm not a professional painter I'm just trying to splash things on on the board if that game fails for some reason or some somehow the information leaks it's no big consequence you know we have to adjust what we do based on the consequence the larger problem today I think is that the interdependency chain is so long and so tricky and so out of control. Now, this is something, again, a technology, SBOM, the Software Bill of Materials, and DBOM, Digital Bill of Materials, are intended to work towards correcting. So being able to trace everything back to its source when you detect something that's become corrupted, being able to fix the supply chain and do that efficiently is an example of a response approach instead of a a complete preventive approach. So so I think there are trade-offs. And that was a very long-winded answer to your relatively simple question. <laughs> Sorry. All right. And, and it's only a partial answer. It's not a simple problem. And I, I agree with what you said, and I appreciate that. You've also said that it's likely that over time, the people who design information systems and schools, government agencies, businesses, what have you, will build even more dependency on information infrastructure into our society. The people of the United States are so dependent today, and that's not my opinion alone. Of course, it's, I think, yours. I think it's people like in government as well. that are so dependent today that in some cases, we we literally cannot survive without information systems. So as we follow this new road of dependency, we may soon reach the point of no return. The question is, are we there yet? And if so, what are we doing to make sure that those systems aren't corrupted or in danger of being disrupted? So I think that might be a little bit beyond the claim that I would make. So when you look at survival, right? So you have to breathe. You know, if you can't breathe, you're in trouble. It takes, what, a minute, right? 60 seconds, something. Maybe maybe you get 120 seconds, two minutes. If you don't have water for about two days, you're going to die. If you don't have food for about two weeks, you're likely to die. And scale goes up from there. People live without electrical power for, you know, all of time. <laughs> and we can do it again if we have to. But without water, we got a serious problem. 
And the problem is that the water, the clean water is supplied largely by technology. And, and by the way, this has been true, you know, since Rome. <laughs> so it's, it's not exactly new. So we've always had dependencies. The dependencies drive more towards the issue of, of a civil society than towards survival of individuals. So, you know, what, what happens historically is uh, snowstorms in, in the uh, north central United States and the power goes out. So the farmers are out there and they're on their own and they don't have enough power and their cows are going to die and they're going to die eventually. So the people that go out to fix the power lines drive out there. And eventually, if it's been too long, some farmers will come out with a gun, point the gun at them and say, fix mine now. Okay, so that's what happens, right? Civil society breaks down if it becomes untenable to survive for long enough. At the same time, we still have wars around the world. We have plenty of people living without electricity, plenty of people you know, living on not that good water and so forth. So whether you know, we will have a massive die-off or something like that, you know, that's a different issue, I think, than the information technology thing. The other issues of civil breakdown, you know, if you lose the monetary system, it's a huge problem, right? Because there's no way to exchange value. And the vast majority of people in the United States today are not, you know, farming. <laughs> they, they don't have anything they can trade for something of value to somebody else. So, you know, knowledge that, that we have, our ability to apply our expertise is of little value in that context. On the other hand, you know, I do have a degree in electrical engineering and I know how to make motors work. <laughs> so, so, you know, there are, there are lots of things we can do to survive as people and as small groups, but the large scale society, that's a huge problem. Yeah, it is. And uh, societal breakdown is kind of the point, right? I mean, it, whether it's water, whether it's heat, whether it's any form of energy. And as you, you, know, you say, you point out that, you know, we've lived without electricity for, you know, literally thousands of years as a race or as a species rather. And we can, you know, certainly do it again for some time, but uh, civil society probably can't. And that's where, I mean, when you remove barriers of any kind were left with the sort of behavior we're now witnessing in many uh, major cities throughout the United States, too. I worry that, you know, we've built a a house of glass that is so glassy (laughs) that uh, it, it only takes one stone to to create that kind of chaos. I'm not sure who's going to enforce laws and, if I can use the phrase, protect society during the consequence of of that sort of thing happening. Yeah, I don't think it's that dire. So, you know, we looked at this in depth. I was at Sandia National Laboratories uh, just before Y2K and slightly after it. And one of the things, you know, I participated in the President's Commission on Critical Infrastructure Protection as a, a technology component of that was looking at power and water and other infrastructure. And people seem to forget basics, right? Water runs downhill. So so basically, if you have water sitting up in a tank somewhere and all the power goes off and all the automatic controls go off, human beings can walk out there and turn valves. And that's still true today. And even if the valves don't have a handy way to turn them, which all of them today typically do, 
you know, that doesn't change the fact that somebody come out can come out and change the valve and, and actually make the water flow. Getting the water back up to fill the tank after it starts to empty, that's a, a different issue. That requires a pump. But, you know, we actually can make hand pumps as well. So, so it's not at the level of dire where we're going to run out of water. And in fact, if you look at water systems, water systems are highly distributed. Basically, every little town um, has a water system. I think there are well over 100,000 uh, different water systems in the United States. So, and, and then there's, you know, groundwater and so forth, right? My house, you talk about all these things, and I've thought through these for my life in my house. In my house, you know, we're on, on granite, and the granite has water that flows through it naturally. And so we have a sump pump to pump the water out. It pumps it out, you know, into our front yard and then pumps it out from there down to wherever it goes next. But that water can pump into a tank, and we have a tank. And so I can pump the water into the tank, and then I have to purify the water. Okay, well, I can boil it and, you know, and so forth. So, so lots of people have that condition. Um, when you talk about power infrastructure, um, it used to be much more centralized than it is. Today, with solar power, especially, um, you know, in California, for example, solar power is, is effectively required on, on lots of things. So we have solar in our house, and, and uh, we don't have a battery, but that's all right. You know, during the day, if necessary, I can get power out of it, and, and I can get old car batteries and charge them up if I have to. So, you know, we can actually live the lifestyle pretty well. Now, uh, admittedly, if you're in, you know, Las Vegas, you don't have water, you're not going to be able to dig a hole and get it. So there's going to be migration, and there already is migration, right? We already have migration because of, of climate issues, and, and water in particular is being a huge problem. On the other hand, we have, you know, massive excess of water in the southeastern part of the United States, typically associated with climate change. But whatever the cause is, you know, we could make pipes that pump the water across the country and we could run those pipes by solar, fully distributed, no centralized control at all, everything locally automated. So, so it's not that we can't do it and it's not that we aren't already starting to do it. We are. But, you know, central control has its efficiencies. The inefficiency of the power grid owing to central control has to do with distribution, right? That you lose a lot of power when you send it through the wires, you know, from place to place. And then there's another challenge associated with that, that maintaining all those wires is problematic. So they start forest fires and, and uh, you know, they have outages and so forth. But all of this is addressable. And it's actually in the process of changing because we're creating a more distributed society in the information arena, as well as in the you know power arena, in the water arena, it's already highly distributed and so forth. Yeah, you've been around cybersecurity since uh, since near the beginning. Uh, in fact, I guess one could argue you were part of it. You've seen a lot of changes, yet you've also seen a lot of the same things repeating themselves, uh, which is what drives me crazy. What is, in your estimation? Our greatest risk today, and one of the most significant threats we haven't we haven't yet gotten our hands around. So there's one of my favorite questions, and this is one of those places where I think we're likely to part company until you hear what I say. So, you know, risk is the R word. It's a four-letter word that ends in K. It's a word that people misuse all the time. Risk uh, is defined in various ways, but the most sort of lucid definition is something like uncertainty about the future. So when you talk about 
a high risk, what you're really talking about is a large range of possible futures. And, and that includes good futures and bad futures. So when you talk about the biggest risk, you're really talking about the biggest variance in, in the difference between our expectations and what's actually going to happen. So that's a very tricky business. We use something called model-based situation anticipation and constraint to try to manage risk. And, and we do that whether we know we're doing it or not. And that's a name that I gave it you know, 20 some odd years ago and I've been describing it since. So the issue really has to do with what is anticipated and constrained by the acts that we take, not just now, but over time. And what's the, the unconstrained future that we anticipate that you know, we can't help from happening because there are other actors out there. And then there's the unanticipated future. In terms of the unanticipated future, I have been surprised by anything I've heard in cybersecurity since the 1980s. <laughs> you know, and, and when you talk about the same old stuff, it's all the same old stuff. Right? It's like, you know, bad code, people make mistakes, those mistakes, you know, turn out to have knock-on consequences, input overruns, failure to check input right? Inconsistency between code, incompatibility between modules, you know, on and on. I mean, there's a list of these things that I wrote uh, and published in the late 1990s that I think it's 140 different attack methods and, and 84 or something different defense methods. And I don't see anything that it's missing even today. <laughs> I haven't had to add anything. And when I wrote it, it wasn't new just through history and making sure that we did our job. I think the biggest problem we have is twofold. One of them is that we don't have people that bother to learn the history and read about what happened before and take it into account. So we're just ignorant of history. We don't teach it properly in the schools. You know, the books don't go into the history of all this stuff. And you have to read all these articles that people wrote, you know, 50 years ago, which are not, you know, on the internet in video form. Right? So you actually have to go you know, and read them. And people don't like to or want to do that, or they're not told to do that. So there's that problem of, of history, right? Reasonable and prudent is you know, this thing that involves people with expertise and light of free making decisions. So the history is there. And the second thing we're missing is that reasonable and prudent part, <laughs> where, where knowledgeable people are engaged to help make decisions about what to do. But when I say reasonable and prudent, which is sort of not negligent, you know, reasonable, when you talk about unreasonable, that's like having fires all pointing at the same spot on sitting up on a wall, you know, not differentiating anything from each other, right? That's just unreasonable. It's too much. It's, it's beyond what, what's reasonable. And the other side of it is imprudent. This is like where you have a million dollars sitting on a table behind a regular piece of glass um, facing an alley with no curtain drawn, and there's a rock in the alley, and there's no uh, alarm system and no response force. So somebody walks along and says, oh, look, there's all that money. Here's a rock. They throw a rock through the window. They grab all the money. They put it in the sack. They walk away. They're done, right? So, so that's the, the imprudent side. So somewhere between imprudent and unreasonable, there's reasonable and prudent, and that's a judgment call, and we're not doing a good job of making those judgment calls. And then sort of the third leg of that stool is, is, I'll call it bad management for lack of anything else. 
the decision making and the execution of those decisions in and I'll call it in a corporate environment you know we're not you know you at home you can do whatever you want but but in a corporate environment it's a control system it's a multi-level control system and it takes information from outside that should inform decision makers they should have a decision making process they should be sharing information outside to others and exchange they if they're at the top of the hierarchy whatever that may be then they should be sending information down and getting information up and using that to make those decisions. And they should have a, a timely manner to make good decisions with a sound basis. And that should happen at every level. So that you know, at, at the next level down, they get information from their executive management and they're doing you know, whatever level that they're doing. And they're also taking into account what's happening out in the world that they can see and communicating outward and, and listening to them and their other sensors, the things going on and communicating to their people and their systems what should be happening and responding in a reasonable fashion and reporting back up. So these control systems that are how we manage, you know, plan, do, check, act from ISO standards, you know, we don't really have those in place. So we're just not managing it in a reasonable way. There's, there's nothing, you know, new here. There's nothing tricky. It's not something that we can't do, right? You look at every attack that you see, and people say, oh, highly sophisticated attack. And you look at it and say, that's not sophisticated. That I saw that in 1992, right? <laughs> it's just the same old stuff. Right. We're just doing our job. Right. And so speaking of school, you've taught for years and years. You've seen a lot of cybersecurity education programs and curriculum and so forth. I guess what I'd like is your assessment of kind of where we are today in, in not just delivery, but design of those systems and curriculum. And, and if you'd like to tell me also what you think about how we're either succeeding or failing about going about the disbursement and distribution of that education to the people who need it. Uh, I'd appreciate that as well. Sure. Of course, you're in the ed biz as well, right? That, that's one of the key things. We are. We've been designing our, yeah, so full disclosure here, we've been designing our cybered.io system, if you will, for a year. The reason that took so long for the most part was we had great difficulty finding a platform that we thought matched our uh, expectations and and our requirements. And then, you know, once we did, the rest of it was sort of easy, if you will, uh, in terms of uh, defining what the content should be and where the emphasis should be. And I, I say that easy, you know, because it's A, my opinion, and B, that opinion is supported by uh, lots of, you know, we have an advisory board of 41, I think it is, CISOs who participated in, uh, in hey, if I were to do this, I'd want to do it this way. Here's where the emphasis needs to be, et cetera, et cetera. I have my own view of where that emphasis needs to be and the sorts of things that are being taught or not being taught in the competitive offerings that are in the marketplace. Right. So, I'll give some full disclosure too, but but the, the first thing, Moodle is sort of this open source learning management system. And that's a, a place that a lot of people started as a platform. And once you start there, because you can customize it, 
and a lot of the basic stuff is covered, it does save a lot of time and effort. I don't know which platform you chose, but that's not a bad one if, for people who want to do that. So that's the learning management system at the baseline. Obviously, you need to do better than that if you want a system that does things like laboratory environments. What you want ultimately for successful education is mixed mode. So you're combining visual with sound, with motion, with activities that people perform, with written work, and so forth, so that they get the information in the different modes in which they can see things and they fuse it all together. Education also takes time. And I want to differentiate between training and education as a starting point. Typically, when we talk about education, we're talking about preparation time of activity. And we're talking about training. We're usually talking about something much more specific that has to do with when you see this, do that. Um, So you have trained response as opposed to thoughtful processes. And of course, in any process like cybersecurity in any substantial entity, it's a cooperative process. It's not just one person. So you also have to have education and practice and working together with others in a collaborative way. So it's a a more complex sort of thing uh, to do education well than to do training well. Um, So having said that, continuing my full disclosure. So some years ago, it's probably four years ago by now, I got together with a couple of folks uh, at izen.ai, I-Z-E-N.ai, and they have a learning management system they were developing. And so we started to develop cybersecurity courses for that learning management system. And that's now available. I think you can actually get um, credits from Webster University for some of the courses in that curriculum. And that's an interesting one because before that, along with Tom Johnson, uh, I was working at University of New Haven. This is about you know 2000 to create an educational, graduate educational program for cybersecurity, and then a, a, a you know, master's uh, in and PhD level. And uh, so, and, and a couple of other programs in there. And we got licensed and then acquired by Webster University, and we brought the programs there. So at Webster, starting around 2001, and Tom was the, the real person doing most of the work there, um, that program got built and expanded. We had laboratories that you could use remotely. We had um, some physical laboratories as well as informational laboratories. And they got to the point where they had 250 students at any given time. And I believe at that time, that was the largest master's program anywhere in the world in cybersecurity. And I'm pretty sure it expanded from there. So, so you know, very you know, successful and growing program. So the problem then, when we start to look at it, is how many you know, experts of what sort and what quality do we need? And the answer comes out to be, oh, 250 at a time won't get anywhere close. <laughs> you can't even start in that yeah. level. Yeah. So, so you know, there are different modes of doing this. You can try and get, you know, university education as it historically has been formed, where you have PhDs um, and they have graduates, and that's running at the generate more PhDs and more master's level expertise. And then undergraduates that are learning at the undergraduate level. And so to develop that in enough volume, you need to generate those professors. So generating a professor from the time they start in their first cybersecurity education at the beginning of college to when they have their PhD and are out there and able to start teaching, hopefully with some practical experience, we're talking about 15, 20 years. (laughs) So, and each one, each PhD can only maybe at most a dozen more PhDs a year and have them be good. So that means 
that, you know, over that period of years, we're just, you know, you count it all up from the number we started with, and you're not going to get anywhere near what you need to educate the, what's the estimate now, hundreds of thousands per year needed in the U.S. And the U.S. is a portion of the population of the world. You know, we're, you know, 300 plus million out of 7 billion, right? So that means you need 20 times that. So you just can't get there from here in a timely fashion with that educational approach. And that's why we started to look more seriously at online education, where we can amplify the the higher quality expertise in larger numbers. You won't get quite the same quality of education out of that program, but you will be able to get the volume up. So you can still run the university stuff and use that for the top end, but then for the rest of it, you know, you have this not quite as good educational experience, but you can start getting the volume up. So when you get to the online platforms, which is what you've done and what iZen has done, then you can deploy, you know, easily you can educate, you know, millions of people every year, get them through one year's worth of education, right? And so if you pick the right things to educate on and you want to fuse that with with hands-on experience, right? Because cybersecurity, first of all, it's an enormously broad field, but also it's not just something where you think and talk, right? You, you, stuff happens and you have to respond. So, so you need to learn how to respond, how to be good at it, how to be fast at it. And then the other thing is, you know, when I was younger, when you were younger, the, the total number of people with different kinds of expertise involved was relatively small. You didn't have to know that much compared to today. Today, if you're going to you know, work at the bottom level of technology and address specific attack mechanisms operating in specific platforms and try to mitigate those without going through sort of a standard clean everything process, it's going to be horrific. An enormous amount of knowledge, more than any one person can ever have, more than 100 people can ever have to deal with that. So you know, what that means is there's going to have to be a lot of specialization. So you're going to have to train people besides the educational process where they understand the overarching issues, they need the training in the specific platform getting on. And that training um, doesn't last, right? So, so you have to continue to retrain them. So that means certification programs. And, and you know, uh, the idea behind the CISSP, Survey uh, Information Security Professional, and the CISM, Security Manager, and the other certificates when they first created that program, was to fix that problem in the same way as we have professional engineers to ultimately get to some sort of a licensing system and an educational process. And I was uh, relatively critical of it early on. The one thing I noticed is everybody that has a CISSP that I've talked to knows the words that I'm using. So, you know, when I say, you know, side channel, or when I say Bell LaPagula model, or something like that. They know what I mean. <laughs> so, so getting the basic language down is one of the fundamental problems we face. This goes, you know, because of the high marketing cybersecurity, everybody's trying to create new words and new old ones. So unlike, you know, well-established engineering fields where I grew up, where words have meaning and they don't change, <laughs> that's not what we have in cybersecurity. We have a new way you know, it's a breakthrough in marketing technology. I don't think you want to get into a discussion of zero as an example, but that would be an example. Sure. 
And there's a reason for that that's very practical, right? You want, <laughs> If you want to stay in business, you had better figure out how your product maps to a zero trust solution in whomsoever's mind you, you're pitching to or you can see. We're going to agree to disagree there. And because as you're well aware, when I hear the words zero trust, I explain that we cannot live in a world of zero trust. So, so number one, if you actually achieved it, you would destroy our ability to do anything. But second of all, the definitions that each person has of zero trust seem to be different from each other. And the definitions that are asserted as widely accepted are internally inconsistent and unachievable. So that's why I struggle against that misnomer, because, you know, I have this view of it, but you're well aware of it. I have this view that when we create those misnomers and those misimpressions, and we use that to hype things, we get into the hype cycle and people, you know, spend more money on more stuff that doesn't get the job done. But it's also an ethical and a moral disservice. So it violates the codes of ethics that, you know, if you're an engineer or you're a member of the or the IEEE or, or those things, you know, they have codes of ethics and the codes of ethics say, no, you, you can't mislead the public. You need to communicate in, in ways that are honest and sincere and don't mislead people. So that that's my feelings about it. And, and I know I'm, I'm not uh, ignorant of marketing, right? I, I've been an industry analyst for many years. I worked at Burton Group where we surveyed all this stuff uh, every year and wrote reports. And I struggled against it then, as I struggle against it now. And and we used to call it a breakthrough in marketing technology, right? So I understand it, but that doesn't take my responsibility in my mind for trying to defend against the misnomer and the misimpression and the misleading of people with regard to what we can actually do and what we should actually be doing. I think what we need to do is manage trust. And we should have a managed trust approach. And all of the techniques of so-called zero trust are really trust management approaches. They're not zero trust approaches at all. But okay, so that's my view. And tell me yours. I'm happy to hear it. Uh, but your view and my view are exactly the same. Uh, we've got a semantic issue. And with that same issue, you will find with folks like Chase Cunningham and John Kinderbag and Eve Mailer, who were you know, three of the folks that uh, were part of the development, if you will, of the whole zero trust notion, which was done at Forrester, which is essentially a marketing company. So I suppose it shouldn't surprise you, me, or anybody else that uh, we ended up with a misnomer, as you point out, like zero trust to define what is actually managed trust in terms of having no issue with that, I don't. And then we have gone so far as to invest it in and establish the Cyber Theory Institute as a way to push back against bogus marketing around that topic and to present only the truth around what you can say we mean by zero trust. And we do that. And I've got, you know, we're 17 people are part of that and serving in kind of fellowship roles and running around the country and world uh, trying to explain what it is we mean by, you know, let's call it managed trust. Uh, now, 
uh, it would be silly of me or anybody to to change the name from man to from zero trust to managed trust for a number of <laughs> a number of reasons. But uh, so we're we're going with zero trust. But and, and uh, just you, to be just to be clear between you and I, we don't disagree at all about what the objective of our program is and what we think is reasonable and practical and and actually doable. And we're very clear about the way you go about it. So I understand and appreciate that, but I'm going to continue to push you and all these other people. And it's okay for me to, you know, go after windmills, you know, the, the quixotic approach. The challenge is, among other things in cybersecurity these days, we're in a struggle of influence operations, right? In deception, disinformation, misinformation, frauds, lies, all, all these things that focus on trying to get things into people's minds that are favorable to the person who's trying to do the influence and at the at harm to the people who are being influenced inappropriate. Correct. So, so when I talked about information protection long ago, it's it's uh, you know about keeping from harm. And this is an example of harm, right? The harm of disinformation, human beings being harmed by having misimpressions, the destruction of civil society and other similar things. So the reason I, you know, take this position, which some people obviously think is hard over, is that I think this is an example of disinformation that we're letting in the door and and that instead of standing up to it and being an example to how to do this against disinformation of all sorts, we're saying our disinformation is okay because it's convenient and we can make money at it. And that is the antithesis of what I think is the appropriate approach. Now, I understand people differ, right? We have a, a group call. We're now having a monthly group call, all.net, my website, you know, we sponsor these things. So anybody that wants can join. They just have to be on the mailing list so they can get the URL. And we had one on trust um, last month. And we had, among other things, you know, uh, Ron Ross from NIST, who knows a lot about this, a lot of different people and across different fields and, and of the spectrum. And one of the people I respect very greatly in this field, he's been a consultant for many years. Doug Simmons is his name. He was the head of the consulting and cybersecurity at Gartner for many years. He worked with me at Burton Group. I've known him for 20 plus years. And he points out that with this expression, they're able to get more executives to move further towards doing a better job of it by getting them to adopt some of these techniques and that that meme is helpful in that, in, to that end. And so I understand that and I appreciate it and I respect it. I just disagree with it, which is fine, right? Absolutely fine. However, what we should do, Fred, and, and I'm conscious of the time here, and as I see, we're 15 minutes over our allotment. I think what this gives rise to is uh, is another at least a half hour session between you and I to uh, to let me try to explain to you what what we're trying to accomplish here within what we call zero trust. And you will see, I think, that it's absolutely no different than your thesis or contention around 
around what we should be doing from a information protection and design point of view. I could be but, wrong, but that that'd be a great no, way no, to so find Steve, out. I'm well aware of the technologies involved, and I think most of those technologies are good things to apply depending on the circumstance. So I, I don't have any disagreement about most of the attempts to implement positive change through identity management and disaggregation of risks and 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 you know verification and authentication and so forth, right? So, but again, the misnomer identity management and temporal microzones is almost entirely what the subject is about, it turns out. So I agree the techniques are useful. A subset of the 100 plus techniques, well, 100 plus answers to questions, each of which involves multiple techniques that constitutes what I would call a, a reasonable and prudent approach to cybersecurity. So I don't think you're going to, you know, frankly, explain to me anything that I didn't agree with. I already agree <laughs> that my fundamental disagreement is the underlying basis of the notion of zero trust and the misuse of the terminology. Okay. Well, that makes it much simpler then. Yeah, but, but, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have another call some other time. I got <laughs> to tell you, Steve, LinkedIn and these other you know, media sites are really poor places to express things because you get so little information. You know, in our discussion, it takes a couple of minutes of you saying something to get your point across. And doing it, you know, in Twitter is even worse. <laughs> so, you know, that's why I write articles every month, because right. I want to be able to express myself in a, a more in-depth way, subject to the ability of my fingers to keep pushing buttons. Well, why don't why don't we take uh, zero trust just on the face of it, and that'll be our topic for next time. And in spite of the fact that both of us agree that that's probably <laughs> a, a, a bad, uh, it's going to be a boring discussion if all we do is agree. A bad terminology. Well, I don't think uh, I, I can't imagine, Fred, that you and I will ever agree on everything. But we've gotten much better. Well, and, and I appreciate um, what you're trying to do as well. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for spending 45 minutes of their, of their day. Uh, hopefully there was good stuff here for them. It was, I thought it was illuminating and, and useful. And it's always great to hear Fred's mind at work. And, and I respect and admire him immensely. We will. Go at it again, if you will, in a couple of months. And, and we'll talk about removing excessive trust from our networks and see where we get with that. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Fred. Take care. And uh, until next time, I'm your host, Steve King, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again. <laughs>